Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. My name is Ellis Williams, recording this on a Thursday. It's starting to feel like the new normal, but I'm about to tell you how we have a little bit of a different podcast coming your way. Mary Kay Cabot is in Miami doing some stellar reporting as she always does. So after a brief open, we're going to play a recorded interview from earlier that beat writer Dan Lobby had with Mary Kay. That'll go for about 15, 20 minutes. And then we'll hear another segment that features myself, Dan Lobby, and fellow beat writer Scott Pascoe which will include more of a breakdown of the recent Browns news where in Dan and Mary Kay's conversation, you know, as Mary Kay does, she gives you the latest hard-hitting news, and you'll be up to speed on what she's hearing in Miami. She's talked with plenty of executives, players, you know, media row. It's a wild week in Miami, and Mary Kay's on the ground getting exclusive interviews. So you'll hear about 20 minutes of the conversation her and Dan had, followed by about a 35-minute conversation that includes myself, Dan, and Scott. But before we get to that, I have to say something about Kobe Bryant. It it feels everyone in this industry with a microphone probably had something to say about the devastating news that broke on Sunday. I've noticed podcasts of great length and dedication videos regarding Kobe and his beautiful daughter, Gianna, made and produced by people far more important than myself. You know, these are the experts, people like Scott Van Pelt, whose voices should be heard and followed as a moral compass while we all grieve through this. Dedicating something to Kobe isn't what I wanted to do here quickly, nor am I qualified for such a task yet. However, it felt inauthentic for me to start talking about the Browns before acknowledging what Kobe had meant to an entire generation, really. You know, Kobe's passing shook everyone, but I want to focus on specifically you know, ages 16 to like 30-ish, for the reason being my little brother's 16, Kobe is his hero. I'm 26. He was my hero. You know, my brother and I are just two of the millions of children who grew up shooting, whether it was a rolled up piece of paper or a milk carton into the trash and shouting Kobe just before releasing it. And that balled up piece of paper or that milk carton, whatever it was, during that K through 12 experience, you know, if that shot went in, you literally felt a little bit like Kobe, or at least imagined that's what Kobe making that game tying shot, that last second buzzer beater for the win must have felt like. Among so many other invaluable lessons, Kobe taught us and showed us firsthand the cost and sacrifice of greatness. Because he wore that process on his sleeve, and we all strive to be like him, really in any small way possible. So for the young heads out there, if you will, this was devastating. I heard the news while I was away, and nothing has really felt the same since. You know, of course, life will go on, and everything will be okay, but the youth are shook. A hero is gone. 
I'm blessed and grateful that I get to cover sports for a living. Part of my job is to talk into a microphone and speak to our listeners about the Cleveland Browns. But the passing of Kobe has made all of this feel a bit minuscule. And look, that isn't a groundbreaking statement, nor should it be. Most older folks already understand and have experienced what I just said. But for the young ones, a generation will see life differently now after Kobe's passing. A legend, a titan, someone who feel, felt and really did feel invincible. But that's also the beauty of sports and part of what Kobe embodied. Sports is an escape from reality. That's what it provides. It lifts us up and out of moods and helps us heal. So to anyone, and of course, regardless of age, anyone who can't go further than a few seconds without the Bryant family jumping back into your mind, heal at your own pace. That is okay. And to everyone else, truly thank you for being a part of this healing process. And of course, thank you, Kobe, for everything. Let's start the show. Okay, now I'm joined by Mary Kay Cabot, who is in Miami covering the Super Bowl. Uh, Mary Kay, let's get started. Since the last time we talked on the podcast, the Browns uh, found their GM. It was a long process, but it ended up being kind of the guy we thought it would end up being all along, uh, Andrew Barry. Uh, just kind of your thoughts on, on the hire. Well, I think it represents a little bit of a return to what the Browns kind of started under Sashi Brown when they were going for that analytics-driven model of football. But I think this is different. People seem to be freaking out a little bit that it's a return to those 1 and 31 days. I think it's different than that. Andrew Berry came up through the scouting ranks. He worked for seven years with the Indianapolis Colts as, you know, as a pro scout. Then he worked for the, the Browns in talent evaluation, moved on to the Eagles for a year under GM Howie Roseman. So I don't think this is a situation where it's going to be all data and numbers and not enough football. So uh, I don't th think people should be that worried about it. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy that has that scouting background with the Colts. Uh, you know, he gets high praise from all different circles, right? You're talking about some of the new school analytics folks, you know, older school uh, I know Bill Polian has had great things to say about him. Um, th this is a guy that, that seems to bridge that gap uh, at least a little bit. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that, that Andrew probably learned from some of the mistakes that occurred during the Sashi Brown regime. I mean, that was, of course, when the, the numbers and the data were, were telling the Browns that Cody Kessler could be their quarterback of the future and was going to be wildly successful. So I think he learned from that. I think he knows that he has to marry up uh, the data, the numbers with good old fashioned scouting and talent evaluation. And I'm sure he's going to hire some really good scouts, keep some of the really good ones that are already here. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't think people need to, to worry that it's going to be uh, just cutting out that old school. Get your eyes on, on, on the players and see what they're all about. Uh, now, of course, part of the fallout from this uh, ultimately came down yesterday. Alonzo Highsmith out, Elliot Wolf out. Highsmith wasn't real surprising, uh, at least to me. I, I was a little surprised that they couldn't find a role for Elliot Wolf in this front office. 
Um, but, you know, the, those two guys are gone. So, you know, look, those were two key members of the old front office. They were, they were in Mobile representing the Browns at the Senior Bowl last week. You, you know, even though this was sort of inevitable that there was going to be change and, and significant shakeup, you know, this has to have some sort of impact on the Browns here moving forward, at least short term. Well, yeah, it does to a degree. But I think uh, people need to remember and to realize that when you bring in a new GM, the old GM and, the, and all that came with him, uh, the key parts of that are going to be gone. It would have actually been, I think, mildly shocking to keep Elliot Wolf around when he was John Dorsey's right-hand man. I mean, that, that, how is that going to make sense? The philosophies clashed. You know, I think that Jimmy Haslam was probably trying to, uh, you know, stay in good standing with Ron Wolf, who he really trusts and, you know, just values his opinion very, very highly. And I think he wanted to keep Elliot on the staff, you know, because not only is Elliot a, a great personnel executive, but I think he, you know, I think Jimmy has some loyalty and some respect for, uh, for Ron Wolf. But, you know, those are the problems that Jimmy has run into in the past, trying to keep some of the old and blending it with the new. And really, if you're going back to the Paul De Podesta, Andrew Barry model, he just doesn't fit. So I, I don't think people should be overly shocked about all that. Yeah, you know, as, as you're talking about that, it, and this is something I've been thinking about too, like maybe this is a good sign that, that Jimmy Haslam has learned. You know, we'll see how this front office and coaching staff works, you know, once the games start. That's that's what this is all about. But, you know, we we saw when he brought in John Dorsey, right? He, he didn't give John Dorsey free reign to kind of hire his head coach. And then, you know, he kept Paul D. Podesta around and, he always has been kind of been mixing and matching and keeping guys that he likes and, and not being willing to cut ties with, with certain people. And you know, so maybe this is a sign of progress for, for Jimmy Haslam and, and his ownership here that when he says alignment, he means alignment. He's going to make whatever changes he needs to make. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're talking about that sort of thing, you just can't keep John Dorsey's people in the building. And the moment, Andrew Berry retired. You you knew that that Alonzo was going to be gone. Now there was a slight chance that if George Payton had been hired, uh, the Vikings GM, assistant GM, there might have been a chance that Alonzo could have stuck around. Maybe even Elliot, uh, because you know it wouldn't have been that complete shift back to uh, the analytics model. But once they did that, and Alonzo even said it yesterday that the philosophies are different, the ways of thinking are vastly different and you're right you know if, if jimmy's going to try a, a different approach he can't keep the old guys in the building okay well i don't need to tell you of course that yesterday that was not the only news there was a lot of other news yesterday so let's go through some of that uh let, let's start with the other hire the browns made alex van pelt uh he will be the team's offensive coordinator uh that, that, that was the big hire yesterday so what do you kind of know about Van Pelt? What can you tell us about this hire? Well, one of the things that I, I is that Aaron Rodgers really, really liked him a lot as his quarterback's coach and was very disappointed when he wasn't retained and moved on to the Bengals as quarterback coach in 2018. So uh, that, I think that's a good sign. If, if, it's, if he's good enough for Aaron Rodgers – then certainly he should be good enough for Baker Mayfield. And the two guys got really close, and uh, and you know they absolutely 
uh, worked very, very well together. So I think that's a good sign. I don't know if he's going to call plays yet. I think that's still up for debate. Uh, you know, I would have to think that if um, if Kevin Stefanski is trying to implement the sort of Gary Kubiak version of the West Coast offense that he ran in Minnesota last year, that he might want to call plays on his own. And one reason I think he could pull it off is because he's got Bill Callahan as his sort of senior offensive advisor to help run the show. I, I think he feels very comfortable with his new defensive coordinator who uh, is expected to be Joe Woods as soon as the Super Bowl is over. Uh, so I think he can let that side of the ball kind of run itself. Uh, so I think he could call his own plays, uh, but he's not wed to that. He's willing to hand it over. And if he feels that that Alex would be better, uh, the team would be better served with Alex doing it, then he'll let him do it. But he has not done it very often. I, I have to check back and see if he was the play caller in 2009 with the Bills. But if so, that would have been the last time. Yeah, and this is yeah. You mentioned the Aaron Rodgers thing, um, and and I also saw somewhere that that he did really great work with Andy Dalton uh, in in a year when Andy Dalton had one of his best seasons. Uh, so so this is a guy that look everything on this offense is going to be built around making Baker Mayfield look more like the guy we saw at the end of two thousand eighteen than what we saw all of two thousand nineteen. It's about getting him better, uh, and, and so you're bringing in a very you're kind of zagging here a little bit. You're bringing in a very experienced guy to be his offensive coordinator, you know, to coach him up. All of this is built around getting Baker better. It really is. And that, I mean, that has to happen. We've talked about it many times. This is a very pivotal year for Baker Mayfield. This is the year where the Browns have to decide if they are going to give him the big money, if they are going to pick up his fifth-year option, and if he is their long-term quarterback of the future. And those guys are making, you know, $30 million a year. So, uh, they have to find out this year if he's that. And, of course, he was John Dorsey's pick. So the new regime isn't going to be as wed to him uh, as the old regime was if he's not that, you know, superstar, elite franchise QB they need him to be. So he's got to step it up and become that. Kevin Stefanski seems to think that he is that. And uh, now it's up to to Alex and Kevin to bring that out in him. Okay, another uh, number one pick who was the topic of the new yesterday of course miles garrett uh you got roger goodell to talk about uh you know that how that was going to happen he said they would meet in the next 60 days uh to talk about his reinstatement from that indefinite ban that, that he was issued for uh whacking mason rudolph in the head with mason rudolph's helmet did, did you get any sense about where that meeting might go and and if that ban's going to be lifted in time for for miles to come back for you know otas yes i really think so i think that this meeting will probably take place. I would think that it's going to get rolling within the next month or so. They had already let Miles back in the building on a limited basis for treatment and to work out with the medical staff. So really, I think it's just a formality to get through, you know, get through the Super Bowl. And then, you know, I'm sure Roger's schedule will uh, free up a little bit. I think it'll happen before the owners meetings we had there in, um, in late March. Uh, that's going to be in Florida this year. Uh, but, you know, who knows? I mean, may, maybe it could even happen uh, somewhere, somewhere around combine time or, or whatever. But I think once the you know, once we start to head towards the start of the league year in March, I think the Browns are going to have miles back probably by then, if not then soon after. So it's good news for the Browns, good news for miles. And for the most part, I think everyone recognizes that this was a blip on the career of Miles Garrett. This was an aberration. 
this is not who he is. And his record is clean aside from this incident. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those things where they stuck the word indefinite on it. And, you know, it always felt like it would have been a little a little much to, to maybe stretch it into, you know, 2020. Um, so it seems like maybe we're trending towards him getting back on the field. Uh, and the NFL also kind of making their statement that, like, hey, we're, we're not going to put up with stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think they felt they had to come out very swiftly and, and very strongly with this right from the beginning and, and make a statement about what they will and won't tolerate. They did that. He paid his dues. And uh, I, I think it will be over sooner than later. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about what you're doing down there in Miami. I, I know you've got a lot of stuff that, that you're working on. Some stuff you put up, some stuff that uh, will be coming over the next few days. Uh, what, what do you want to tell us about? Well, I ran into Jarvis a little while ago. Talked to him a little bit about how excited he is about the new offensive coordinator and uh, you know how he is really hoping that there's, you know, some clarity and focus to the offense now. You know, he's admitted that that wasn't the case last year, which we all kind of knew that. But, yeah. you know, to hear these guys actually come out and say it now uh, sort of gives it, you know, even a little bit more validity. Uh, he talked about not having the surgery and how he was happy that he didn't have to do that. Uh, mentioned Odell and what happened after the, the game, the LSU game, and how that was an emotional thing. And really, you know, not something to worry too much about with with Odell and, um, you know, him just getting getting excited to get back at it and hope that it's, you know, better times ahead for the Browns. Uh, and then, of course, you've been able to catch up to a couple former Browns, right? Yesterday, I spent some time over at the Chiefs availability. I sat down with Cam Irving for a little bit and, you know, Cam had his horrible ups and downs when he was in Cleveland. You know, now he's starting for the Chiefs as our other former offensive lineman. It's like Joe Thomas said, it's like the Chiefs <laughs> are the, you know, the, the Cleveland Chiefs when you look at that offensive line. So I checked in with Austin Ryder, who is uh, their starting center. You know, he, it didn't work out for him in Cleveland either. Uh, Mitchell Schwartz. So kind of interesting to, to say hello to some of those guys. And then uh, I talked to Cam a little bit about Kareem Hunt and some of the things that Kareem is going through. Uh, those guys, Travis Kelsey, uh, the Clevelander tight end, you know, those guys think the world of Kareem and uh, they were sorry to see what he went through, you know, last week with the police stop. But they still believe that, uh, you know, that he's an excellent running back and they, you know, they hope that the Browns stick with him and give him a chance. Yeah, so, so let's circle back on that uh, with, with Kareem Hunt, the, the video coming out of, of the stop. And of course, you know, Kareem Hunt is always going to be on the NFL's radar for anything. Uh, I'm sure the NFL is very much aware of of what happened. How, how do you think this is going to play out? Or, or do we just not know? Is it just too early to really know? You know what? I think it's too early to know. I think it's one of those things where Andrew needs to get on the job. I think those guys need to meet with Kareem. I think they need to find a, see where Kareem's head's at. And I think everybody needs to do that. I think the NFL needs to intervene with Kareem. And, you know, make sure that he's okay. We heard Roger Goodell say yesterday at the press conference that, you know, they want to make sure that Antonio Brown uh, is is well going forward. And I think it should be the same for Kareem. This was a red flag. This is a young man who's been through a lot in his life and in his NFL career. He explained that, you know, this whole Chiefs in the Super Bowl thing is weighing on him and getting to him. And uh, 
And I think the Browns, the NFL, and everybody else involved with Kareem Hunt, I think they all need to kind of get a hold of him right now and, uh, you know, put him into some kind of you know, more counseling programs or just make sure that he, he's okay emotionally right now because he did not sound okay to me during that stop. Yeah, it, it was concerning. And, uh, you, you know, the thing, you know, from a personal standpoint, you want to see him, you want to make sure he's right. You want to make sure that, that he's all good in that regard. You know, the problem the Browns will face is on the football field. They've got to make sure that they can count on him to be available and, and be able to play if they're going to go with him. This is not the Josh Gordon situation, but we do remember over and over again, you know, you're counting on a guy, counting on a guy, and then he's not there. Uh, that, that's kind of what the Browns have to weigh here if, uh, if they're a little concerned about some of Kareem Hunt's decision-making. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. So, um, you know, definitely something to look into. And, you know, I, I hope that the Browns do that as soon as possible because you would hate to see another promising player end up out of the league, you know, like, like a Josh Gordon, uh, just because people didn't act quickly enough to make sure that that person got the help that they need, whatever that might be. And it just seems to me that uh, that he needs something right now. I, I don't know what it is, but he just he didn't sound right. And I think he needs some counseling uh, of some sort, perhaps. Or, you know, he's already been going through a lot of that kind of stuff. I think they, they just need to make sure that he's on the right track. Okay, uh, I think we hit on everything. Uh, I know that, uh, like I said, you are obviously keeping very busy uh, in Miami, and we can count on a lot of stuff, uh, a lot more stuff, uh, coming out of your trip down there to, to, cover, to cover the Super Bowl. And then uh, we'll get back to normal next week. One, wait, one more thing. Okay. Um, I spent a lot of time with Joe Woods yesterday, the, oh, the, right. new Brown, the new Browns defensive coordinator, or he will be the Browns defensive coordinator as soon as he gets done with this Super Bowl, And, uh, you know, he just seems like he was a very likable guy. Uh, everybody that I talked to about him says that he is very technique oriented, that, that he's going to make sure these guys are tackling well and that they're very fundamentally sound. Uh, he really sounds excited about coming to Cleveland and he's got a great relationship with Kevin Stefanski. And I think that's a really good hire. All right. So, uh, yeah, Joe Woods uh, likely to be named defensive coordinator very shortly uh, after the Super Bowl uh, on Sunday. So, OK, Mary Kay, I know you're busy, so appreciate you taking the time out to, uh, to for this little section of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Dan. Hello and welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. My name is Ellis Williams. We're recording this on a Thursday. I'm joined by fellow beat writers Dan Lobby and Scott Pascoe. My friends, how are you two doing? Doing good. Uh, I'm good too. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing well. Happy to be here. So listeners, you guys just got done hearing a tape segment with Dan Lobby and Mary Kay Cabot. Now that we have us three here in the booth, we're going to sort of break down the things that have been happening with the Browns and uh, give you a little more analysis. So um as you heard, Andrew Barry hired officially on Tuesday as the Browns' new GM uh, at 32 years old, making him the youngest GM in the league. Um, you guys first, just talk about the hire. What do you know about him and your first reactions when you heard the news? 
Uh, well, not, not just the youngest GM in the league, but the Browns are saying the youngest known GM yeah. in the history of the NFL, which is uh, certainly something too. He's he's been a, a an up and comer ever since he left. Um, ever since he left Harvard, uh, he's been a guy that got into that scouting and personnel side pretty quickly, and uh, he he was always going to be on that fast path to be a GM. Yeah, I don't know if there was, uh, you know, any plans when Sashi Brown brought him in to maybe make him the GM one day. And then, of course, he decided to go to Philly after the, the front office shakeup. But this guy was going to be a GM at a very young age. It, it became apparent very quickly. So not a big surprise that the Browns were able to bring him back in that role. Yeah. It's, uh, once we learned how big of a role Paul DiBodesto was going to have, it seemed everything was kind of steering this way. Um, right. And it, it's weird. It just reminds me that, you know, back to 2016, it's almost like they're giving that a second chance. Somebody talked to Jimmy Haslam and said, you know, we were on the right path. We just, we got off track. Let's bring Andrew Barry back. Let's do this right. And, you know, they got the band back together and, and here we go. The only difference is you got a head coach who seems to be on the same page as opposed to Hugh Jackson, who we found out really wasn't. So. Right, right. And that, that'll be something we'll come back to is the alignment that Jimmy Haslam, uh, the tag word he kept using when this search started. And now it feels we have that. I want to ask you back with the youngest GM thing. My mind's kind of thinking right now. I think the Toronto Raptors have uh, a GM and an assistant GM that might be in his early 30s or something like that. But that's really the only one I can think of right now. Um, simply, is is his age a factor here? Is is 32 just too young to be a, a GM in the NFL? I, I guess I mean we're not going to know until things start happening here. But um, when you see that number, do you worry a little bit? I, I don't think his age is is necessarily a problem. I, I think what matters is, you know, experience level. And, and I guess we'll find out about that because there's going to be a time when he's going to have to lean on a connection, you know, to get a deal done or get a trade done or, or something like that. Uh, and, and we'll see if he's kind of built that, that equity up in the league uh, over his years here. He hasn't been in a lot of places. He's been in Indianapolis. He's been in Cleveland. He's been in Philadelphia. You know, there's, there's other guys that have not been a lot of places either, but you know, the true test is going to be, you know, when he has to pick up the phone and make a deal or something like that, that, that that's what we're going to find out. I don't think the age itself is, is necessarily anything to step back and say, oh, he's, he's way too young to do that. The league is getting younger, uh, you know, all across coaching mm -hmm. GMs. This is obviously an extreme. Uh, I mean, Kevin Stefanski is 38. I, I wonder if the Browns have, <laughs> you know, we talk about the youngest known GM in history. I wonder if the Browns have like the youngest GM head coach combo in the history yeah. of the league. It's It's got to be pretty close. Yeah. It's, uh, look, he can either do the job or you can. I think you're right, Dan. It's going to come down to when he picks up the phone, uh, is he able to make the, the deals he wants to make? But he's had the, he's had the, the, uh, the path that, you would want someone to take if they become a GM. It's, this isn't like going from <clears throat> running backs coach to, to head coach in you know less than a year. It's <laughs> when did that it's, happen? No, it just <laughs> that just off the top of my head. But you know, this, I don't think that's the equivalent of this. It's this. You know, he was VP of player personnel, VP of uh, football operations, and now you know he's, he's a GM. So it just seems to make sense. Right, right. Scott, you you mentioned alignment. We're going to shift back to that. Um, as you said, Jimmy Haslam's found that alignment in Barry. Paul DePodesta and Kevin Stefanski, an Ivy League trio there, if you will. Um, does this alignment first Haslam finding it, and then those three individuals, of course, then reporting to Jimmy Haslam, does that regime, that order of operations, instill any confidence in either of you? It instills confidence in the sense that I think you've got 
two guys in Stefanski and Andrew Barry who aren't going to necessarily, and we don't know for sure. It, we'll see when things start to go badly, uh, how they respond. But I don't think they're going to let like egos and power struggles get in the way, at least not here in the early going. I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I talked to Mary Kay about it. I think the one thing that, that kind of stands out here is, you know, maybe Jimmy Haslam is finally kind of getting away from this trend he's been on of, well, I really like this guy that's from an old regime, so I want to keep him around, and we're going to try and mesh him with this guy. You know, we saw it when he brought in John Dorsey and decided to keep Paul D. Podesta around. That was just never going to work. So now, even though you hate to see a guy like Elliot Wolf leave the organization and a guy like Alonzo Highsmith leave the organization, maybe that's a sign that Jimmy Haslam is willing to listen when people say, this just doesn't work. These guys just don't fit. They may be really talented. They may be really good, but it doesn't work. They don't work with what Paul DePodesta wants and, and what Andrew Barry wants to do. So we just have to cut ties. So maybe that's a good sign. Alignment's great. <laughs> you got to pick players and you got to win games. We, we've learned that over and over and over again. Everything on paper can look good. It's got to happen in practice. And so it, it's a boring, it's kind of a boring take, but I guess we'll wait and see. That, that's sort of my approach yeah. to all of this, yeah. honestly. And on paper, I think that's a good way of putting it because it's a lot like the team was last year. On paper, hey, it looked great. But, you know, it's got to work. And on paper, you know, Stefanski, DePodesta, Barry, they, they seem to fit. And it seems to be, from what we know from the outside, it seems to look like it's, it's the right kind of alignment. But we won't know until, until it happens. You know, I think Mary Kay talked a lot about how uh, Stefanski and Barry kind of hit it off and, um, you know, stayed in contact and stuff like that. But it's, it's a different story when you're working together. It's like dating somebody versus, you know, moving in with them. <laughs> sure. It's That's a totally a different world. So... How will they? How will they deal with what they have to deal with when it comes up? Because there are all sorts of things that happen in the off season, especially with the Browns, that you can't anticipate. Um, and you know how how are they going to come to those decisions as a group? And you know that's when we'll find out whether or not they are truly aligned. Right, right. Dan, you brought up uh, Elliot Wolf and Alonzo leaving. Uh, quickly for you both, just your reactions when you heard that news. Were you expecting it? Surprised? These guys have been here for a while. Just w when you heard the news, where'd your head go? I, I was surprised. Okay. Honestly, Alonzo Highsmith was still here, sure. uh, so okay, I'm not. Sur it. I'm not surprised that he's that he's gone. I think, uh, I do think Elliot Wolf was a different story. I thought maybe he could fit into a new system, uh, but obviously, when when they decided to make the hire, they made an Andrew Barry. They just couldn't. It felt a little bit like the John Dorsey thing, you know. Hey, John, we'll keep you on, but we want you in a different role. It, it felt like they just couldn't find that fit uh, for Elliot Wolf in this new structure. Yeah, it was surprising to me too. I think. Uh... I mean, they're on staff. They had to send someone to the senior ball. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was kind of weird. Uh, although now that Elliot Wolf is out, I think uh, the Browns have made another enemy in, in Ron Wolf. Uh, he had <laughs> we'll some harsh to... things to say about analytics. Which, And I talked to him last year, I think. I talked to him about John Dorsey a year ago, a year and a half ago. He wasn't a big fan of the Packers anymore because they had not given Elliot Wolf a shot at the GM job there. So... This seems to be par for the course. Um, it's understandable. He wants, you know, he wants opportunities for his son. But wow, he <laughs> he comes out strong when things don't work out. Yeah, and Ron, Ron was a fixture in Berea too. We we yeah. saw him a lot at training camp, a lot at practices. He would he would make appearances there. So uh, he he was a fixture, and um, you know, we'll we'll see uh, we'll see if he's still buddy buddy with Jimmy Haslam or not. Yeah. On, on that same note, this the analytics thing comes up again and I thought we were maybe moving past it when you know Kevin Spansky had his presser and seemed to calm the I don't know nerves isn't the right word but it seems like 
calm the nerves about the analytics. Like, listen, guys, it's just using information to make better decisions. You know, he simplified it accurately and well, I thought. And now we're back at this, uh, the whole front office is analytics-driven. You know, when something goes wrong, they're going to blame the, blame the data. Do you guys feel any shades of the Sashi Brown stuff coming back, or is this all just being overplayed too much on Twitter? I thought it was – how many teams would have their chief strategy officer give a press conference when the new coach is hired? That's – not many. I thought it was, you know, I know he was a big part of the, the search. Uh, and Jim made a point of, you know, explaining who's on that committee. But how many, it was just, it was yeah. weird uh, that, that he was one of the voices there, which makes you think that he will be a big voice going forward. Right. But, you know, and again, how how, how rare is that? I don't, I mean, we're not at other at other press conferences for, for head coaches, but it just seems odd that, that he was one of the, you know, having Jimmy speak, having, um, you know, if there had been a GM at that point, having them speak, you know, maybe DePodesta doesn't speak. Right. Then, but uh, I just thought that was kind of a weird choice. Yep. Yeah, and this is very clearly Paul DePodesta's moment. One way or another, this is going to be Paul DePodesta's moment, and this is either going to work brilliantly, and he's going to go down as the guy that really finally started to change football and then the view of analytics in football and how it's used, or it's going to fail, and he's going to go down as a guy that should have stuck to baseball, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I mean, those are two extremes and not fair, but I mean, that's ultimately how he's going to be judged based on how these hires go. These are, this is his structure, this is his front office. You know, I, th- I think people are a little, there were a lot of people that loved Sashi Brown's plan. They thought it was great. They thought they loved the, the asset acquisition. And, you know, I, I think there were good things that came out of it. And, you know, the few guys the Browns have that are key players now came out of those. It, it was also a little extreme. And I think people felt a little burnt by that because the Browns also passed on some very, very good football players, not just quarterbacks, but just very good players in that process. I, I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle here uh, with a lot of these things. But I don't think this is going to be like Sashi Brown 2.0. Whether you loved Sashi or didn't love Sashi, this isn't going to be Sashi 2.0. The Browns are past all of that. Yeah, it, it feels different. And for me, of course, I wasn't here when Sashi Brown was here. But from what I've read, what I've gathered, it, it seems like having Kevin Stefanski in place solidifies the the trio of analytics, if you will. And again, I thought Stefanski did a good job of simplifying the whole thing like look we're just going to use information better perfect that's what you you want to hear now that you have your head coach on the same page and you know you're not doing the the Hugh Jackson Todd Haley too many chefs in the kitchen type thing Stefanski might be the calming force through all this and allowing it to play out at least for some, a few years here not a, a, a quick turnaround because it seems like that's something the Haslam's are com- completely going to get away from unless we're doing this all again next year which it seems <laughs> yeah. like we're not going to be right yeah, this isn't going to work unless the head coach is on the same page, and it seems like that's the case. Although we do not know if Sashi Brown had stayed, if Hugh Jackson would have made it to a third year. Maybe Kevin Stefanski is the coach for 2018 if Sashi Brown sticks around. So we don't know. Well, you know, we don't know that if John Dorsey had his choice, if Hugh Jackson would have stuck around for a third year either. Again, mm-hmm. that kind of goes yeah. back to Jimmy saying, well, we hired this head coach, and we like this head coach, so we, you know, you're going to be our GM, but you got to keep him. Uh, would would there have been a different situation in place there as well? So uh, I guess Hugh Jackson was the big winner in, in all of that, getting another <laughs> another half season. I, I just think the big thing is, like, information's not a bad thing, right? Like, information, data, all of that stuff, 
it's not a bad thing. And, and you can marry information and data with really good scouting and really good game planning. And, it, you know, every now and again, even using your gut when, when you're making these calls on the sideline, you, you can have having more information at your disposal and applying it to everything you do is never a bad thing. Yeah, I think uh, Deep Podesta really tried to kind of demystify what he was doing right. uh, in his job, just analytics as a whole, because there is a, it seems like there's a section of the fan base who thinks everybody in Berea is sitting at a computer running algorithms and trying to figure out what they should do at each step of the way. Um, what we should have for lunch, you know, type it into the computer right, quick. Right, <laughs> right. Or that, you know, it's like some 80s movie and, you know, what computers were back then and sure. you could, you know, start a war or create, you know, a girlfriend or whatever. It's, yep. it's not... It's not like that. <laughs> I'm pretty confident in saying yep, yep. they're not doing that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's using information, like he said, and it's making informed choices. And they're just making sure that they use all that information and they're not you know, disregarding it. Yeah. Our, our last big ticket item here before we start taking some questions from our football insiders. Uh, there was another coaching hire, uh, Alex Van Pelt, former Bengals quarterback coach, is headed to Cleveland. To join Kevin Stefanski uh, and an offensive coordinator, possible quarterback coach combination here. Not entirely sure yet, uh, but I want to ask you guys. You know, similar to what we've been saying, when you, when you heard the news, um, you know, it, it helps we cover the AFC North. Did did you have to Google who Alex Van Pelt was? Were you guys aware? Maybe fans at home were doing something like that. Uh, you hear the name, you hear the pairing with Stefanski. What do you think this means for the Browns' offense, specifically Baker Mayfield? Well, you know, you heard Mary Kay and I talk about it a little bit. This is a guy that Aaron Rodgers really seemed to like when he was in Green Bay. Uh, I saw somewhere on Twitter somebody posted an article where he really helped Andy Dalton uh, have one of his best seasons a couple years ago. Uh, so, so this is a guy that, you know, it seems positive. This seems like a really good hire, and everything that they're doing offensively has to revolve around getting Baker Mayfield better. And last year you had Freddie Kitchens as your offensive coordinator slash head coach. Obviously Todd Munkin was the true, it was the real offensive coordinator carried that title. Um, and then you had Ryan Lindley as your quarterbacks coaching. You just didn't have a lot of guys who with a ton of experience who were really just pushing and coaching and making Baker Mayfield better. And you're going into year three of Baker and you got a lot of decisions to make on Baker after year three. And that's, this is the most important year of his early career here. And they've got to, uh, they've got to build everything around him. And I think this is a positive step. Yeah. I knew who Alex Van Pelt was, <laughs> but it was one of those cases where, wow, I, I didn't realize he was in, in the running. That's well yeah, put. Uh, you know, we really hadn't heard his name. Uh, I think it reminded me of, uh, uh, something Dan, you said about Josh McDaniels about how he could he could look at Baker and say, "Well, this is how Tom Brady did it." Well, you know, he can do that with with Aaron Rodgers and uh, mentioned to Baker how you know how Aaron Rodgers went about things in Green Bay. So that's that's a positive. And, and yes, he does have a lot more experience than Ryan Lindley came in with. Um, but it's it's another case where we will have to wait and see who gets the play calling uh, reins. When he was in Buffalo, he took over. It was one of the that was the one yeah. year where a bunch of those offensive coordinators or just a few coordinators in general got fired right before the season. Uh, the Bills had been really bad in the preseason, I guess. So they uh, they promoted him from quarterbacks coach uh, to offensive coordinator, and he basically it was kind of like Freddie. You know, you you you're taking over on the spur of the moment. And you have to go with the offense that's already installed. Um, things didn't work out as good for him as as it did for Freddie Kitchens yep. when he took over. But uh, so we'll have to wait and see how how. If if Stefanski thinks, you know, 
Van Pelt calling plays is the best way for them to win. So. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I want to ask you guys about that in a second. Uh, quickly following up with just uh, Van Pelt's coaching history, um, I found it interesting. After that uh, Bills year, he becomes the quarterback coach in Tampa and actually gets one of the best seasons out of uh, Josh Freeman. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> old old name uh, some might remember. Um, I think he threw like 30 touchdowns. Josh Freeman threw like 30 touchdowns, five, six interceptions. Um, and there, you know, there, there was a time when Josh Freeman was like, "Oh, this guy's one of the great yeah. young quarterbacks in the league for yeah, like that, that probably that year." Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and um, just going on Freeman's uh, pro football reference page, which I have never done, and no reason for many people other other uh, than me to do that this morning. Um, yeah, Freeman had about one and a half good years, and the, one of his best years, as Dan just said, was with Van Pelt, which, um, of course, you say, okay, this guy got the best out of Aaron Rodgers. Well, who can't get that? You know, it's easy to write him off or scoff at it. Uh, if you go back and, you know, look, all you have is the box scores to look at unless you go back and watch the tape, but a body of work, 16 games, Freeman started all 16 games. It was an impressive stat line, almost 3,500 yards. So... If you can do that for a young quarterback, I believe Freeman was in his second year when that happened, and then he follows that up with some of Aaron Rodgers' best work. Uh, you know, it's been reported by Mary Kay, and we've talked about how uh, Aaron Rodgers wasn't happy when Van Pelt wasn't retained. It probably takes uh, a pretty big move for Rodgers to throw his own team under the bus like that to the media. You know, he's one of the most intelligent and media savvy guys in the league. Um, and then you know his work with the Bengals is fine. Andy Dalton is what he is, but that body of work seems to bode well, at least for the way he works with quarterbacks. And it, it tends to be that's what you look for when you make that move to offensive coordinator. Scott, as you laid out, his first shot in Buffalo probably wasn't the most fair like at all. No, <laughs> so, no. you know, so we can't judge him too hard there. And it really is going to come down to uh, the responsibilities he takes on here, which is what I want to ask you guys about next. Look, asking should he call plays or not is – not something we can really get into because there's just too much unknown. What I do want to ask is, do you think Kevin Stefanski can learn from Freddie Kitchens last year? It became widely apparent that Freddie was overwhelmed. Uh, we'll say specifically on game day when it came to the play calling duties, and that's how you end up with the delay of games and the 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 random timeouts and the people line not lining up where they were. Things just weren't buttoned up. Stefanski being a first year head coach. 37 years old, do you think it would be wise for whether or not he can handle it, not to risk it, learn from what happened with this organization last year, and allow Van Pelt to call plays, which would then clean up Stefanski's plate for game day? I, I just think I think the lesson he needs to learn is you, you've got to know when to, when to give up, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Freddie Kitchens was stubborn all year long. You know, despite all the issues with the play calling and the the play clock and getting guys in, getting in and out of huddles, all of that stuff, uh, Freddie Kitchens was never willing to just say, you know what, I'm going to let Todd Munkin call the plays. Yeah, I mean that that even happened, you know, in other places with Todd Munkin, right? Like we're going to let him call the plays. He was a good play caller in Tampa. We're yeah. going to give him a shot and see if that can make things operate some more smoothly. Kevin Stefanski, if he wants to call the plays, I'm fine with it. I. I now, again, this is one of those issues where I think Browns fans have been scarred by it failing in the past. It doesn't mean it won't happen here. I know, Scott, you've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. It can work, but he's got to be willing to take a step back and say, you know what? I- I'm doing too much. I'm going to let I'm gonna let uh, Van Pelt call the plays here and 
you know, maybe at some point I'll bring it back. I'll take it back. But for right now, I'm going to let somebody else do it. That's what he has to learn from Freddie Kitchens. I thought it was the, he, he handled that the right way in his press conference when, when he was asked if he'd call plays and saying, well, you know, we'll wait and see. Uh, but Freddie Kitchens was hired because of his play calling down the stretch uh, in 2018. And for him to give that up, you, it, I think I'm like, I can't get into his brain, but it just seemed to me like if I'm in that position and I was hired because of that and I go halfway through the season and I give that up, what am I, what am I saying? Right. Why was I hired? Um, I just felt like every time he was asked and the way he answered that was like him saying, no, this is why I was hired and I'm not, it's like giving up. I don't get the feeling that Kevin Stefanski was hired because of his play calling. Um, there's just seemed to be so much more involved with, with this hire than, than just that. Um, so I, if he does call plays, like I think I wrote that half the coaches in the NFL call their own plays. So it's not, I mean, it's not unprecedented young play or young coaches doing it. You know, there's sometimes some growing pains, uh, in, in Tampa, uh, or rather in Green Bay worked out okay this year. Um, you know, in, in Cincinnati, yeah. maybe not so much. So right. I, right. it just depends. And I think going into it, knowing that he, he, he seems to understand that it can be something that he might not want to do. I, that's the right way to go about it. Yeah. I like both your points there. The first being, you know, Stefanski's not good or he doesn't come off as a guy who'd be too proud to not let something go. And Scott, to your point, it, it, Stefanski wasn't brought in specifically because of his play calling brilliance. There seems to be a more well-rounded and sound approach here. Um, all right, so we're going to get into our Football Insider questions here real quick. Uh, just a reminder to subscribe to Football Insider. It is just three ninety nine a month. You can click on the blue banner at the top of cleveland.com slash browns. That's how you get exclusive content, uh, including our newsletter, uh, texts from all of us when Mary Kay has something first. Uh, she hops on Insider and breaks it down for you guys um, with text directly to your phone. And that is how you can also get your questions on our weekly podcast, Orange and Brown Talk. So we're going to jump right in with our first question from Fred in North Canton asking about Kareem Hunt. How will the Browns deal with Kareem Hunt? Will there be a, quote, zero tolerance policy? Or has the, have the Browns been burned by Josh Gordon and others in the past? So quickly to catch everyone up, if you haven't heard him, I'm sure you have. Kareem Hunt um, was cited for a speeding violation on uh, January 21st. Uh, there was They found marijuana and an open container in the car, though he was not cited for either of those. So back to the question, how do you think the Browns deal with Kareem Hunt? Will there be a zero-tolerance policy on him, or will this be a situation where you could see him remaining with the team if the coaching staff decides to do so? I don't mean there won't be a zero tolerance policy. I think, you know, when you start doing the zero tolerance, it doesn't yeah. leave any wiggle room down the road with any other players, obviously. Uh, this is a, a tough situation. I, I think the Browns, we have to see if the NFL wants to step in and, and do something first. That that's, has to be part of the Browns' decision-making process. Uh, the, what you have to watch out for is, you know, th this is a guy who, again, kind of caught himself. This is a different situation, but got caught making bad decisions and, and got caught putting himself in a position where something like this happened. And he's already on the NFL's radar and the Browns went through this, have gone through this before with other players, you know, specifically Josh Gordon, again, a very different situation, but just in terms of 
can we rely on this guy to be there on Sundays or is the NFL going to hand out a two game suspension or a four game suspension or something like that? You can't, you can't go back and forth with that. You can't win if one of your best players and a guy you're counting on, you can't rely to be there on Sunday. So that's the decision the Browns have to make. Um, I don't think they'll do anything extreme here. I think they have a lot of options with Kareem Hunt. I don't think there's going to be teams knocking down the door to try and sign him this offseason, especially because of this. So the Browns have some opportunities. And the other thing they have to weigh is there's a team that used to have Kareem Hunt and they don't have Kareem Hunt anymore and they're playing on Sunday. So the Browns have to weigh that as well when, when they're going through this decision. Kareem Hunt is a fantastic player, maybe the maybe the best all-around player on the Browns. But he's also at a position where you can find guys. We already have Nick Chubb and you can find guys like Raheem Mostert. And, and other guys like that who can do what you need them to do in that role. I don't think this was, this wasn't good, the traffic stop, but I don't think it rises to the level of uh, where you start having discussions about getting rid of Kareem Hunt. Okay. And I think you're right, Dan, there isn't going to be uh, uh, an overwhelming rush to, to sign him. Uh, he's a restricted free agent, and I, yeah, I don't see him getting uh, any huge offers. Uh, I think maybe some teams might be a little gun-shy on that. But... This, it isn't similar. It isn't, I know alcohol was, might have been involved, but there's not something here that's similar to the things that he got in trouble for in the first yeah. place. You know, there wasn't uh, an anger management issue. He wasn't hitting anybody. Um, it's a traffic stop. It's speeding. Um, and I think the police did a good job of explaining why they didn't uh, uh, charge him for the marijuana uh, not being uh, enough. Um, and also the, the new hemp laws, I think they, they, they mentioned. So, yep. I think the Browns, what are they going to, how the Browns going to deal with him? They're not going to do anything. They're going to talk to him, I'm sure. And they're going to wait and see what kind of offers he gets, if any, and just kind of go from there. If there was really a true zero tolerance policy, uh, he wouldn't be here. (laughs) So zero tolerance with an asterisk that says, you know, based on how good you are as a player. So I don't think that, that Kareem Hunt is, is in danger of being cut, but, uh, I think he's on he's on some of the last legs here. If it, anything happens anywhere near what uh, what he did when he was with the Chiefs, then then yeah, I think you got big decisions to make. But I don't think that traffic stop is. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't look at this situation. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Kareem Hunt did mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah, I can't believe that he. You know, I mean, I mean, there were a lot of factors. The only thing is, it was just bad decision making, right? Mm-hmm. Like whatever whatever he did, he just made bad decisions, and of mm-hmm. course, then you've got. You know, TMZ getting the video of the stop where he, you know, admits the the part about the NFL or whatever, says what he said about the NFL drug test and whether he could pass that or not. But again, it was ultimately just a speeding ticket. And there was a small amount of marijuana in the car that doesn't seem like it was his. And there was an open bottle of vodka in his bag. It's not like he was driving around with it in his cup holder, you know, drinking out of it. So it, it was just bad decision making. The incident itself... It is what it is, but you know this is one of those situations where, when you kind of heard him talking and you, you kind of get a little concerned, and you just kind of hope that the Browns are able to step in and say these are the steps you need to take, and the NFL does the same thing, and that nothing else really comes of it. But we wouldn't be surprised if he gets a game or two suspension, would we? No, nothing. Nothing would surprise. I mean, the NFL. We everybody talks about this all the time. The NFL kind of makes a lot of this stuff up as they go. Right. I think they've done a better job of trying to take care of guys in this regard instead of just you know, handing out these tough suspensions and, and, you know, saying, we'll see you later. I, I think Josh Gordon actually is an example of that as the NFL has given him chance after chance and, and try to help him along the way. So 
uh, ho- hopefully that's kind of where the league leans in, in regard to this. Yeah, in a, in a sports week filled with uh, bummer news, which I, I address at the top, this, this um, of course, doesn't fall near any other things I'm alluding to, but this, this was disappointing to hear. Uh, Dan, I like how you mentioned how Kareem Hunt might, may be the most talented player on the Browns football team. I, I couldn't agree with that statement more. I've been kind of hit on Twitter for it a little bit. Uh, but the guy can just do really everything on the field, things that Nick Chubb can't do or Odell Beckham can't do. He really is just this perfect blend of new school football, and he plays with a tenacity and a level of passion and love that you don't find uh, many smaller running backs uh, playing with. But I agree with both you guys. One or two game wouldn't surprise me. I don't think this is the end of the world. Like you said, Scott, he wasn't doing what originally got him – in trouble and off the the team playing the Super Bowl right now, but it just it it's just another thing on the list, and that's really the point we're we're making here, and that's what you were hoping that would Cream Hunt could just stay away from this stuff, just stop putting yourself in a position um, to be the headline for the wrong reasons. So what I want to ask you guys is, let's say it's a one or two game suspension, assuming Cream Hunt is retained by the Browns. And something in week nine or something, the bye week comes out, and it doesn't have to be real large, but another traffic stop. Or really, if this exact story happens again, I mean, is he, are, are the Browns going to be facing, let's call it three strikes, is he on strike two, where the next thing, really, no matter what it is, is just a you're immediately cut situation? I think as long as he's affordable, he's worth keeping just like Josh Gordon was. Josh Gordon never cost the Browns a lot of money. Um, and they stuck by him until they just kind of, I guess, ran out of patience maybe or just decided <laughs> that they had enough to to be able to part ways with the potential of Josh Gordon. But as long as, as Kareem Hunt uh, is, you know, quote-unquote affordable, at least for a running back, um, you know, they'll they'll do what they can to, to help him work through whatever it is he has to work through. That's That's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, and I, and I don't even know, even though we we just said it wouldn't surprise us if the NFL did something. I I, I don't know. I still wouldn't expect any kind of I, – I I guess surprise is the wrong word because I guess I would be a little bit surprised if they did actually issue any sort of significant suspension. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think there's – if if we're talking about this again, yeah, like you said, in training camp or something like that, um, then – yeah, there's there's going to be an issue. I don't think this is going to lead to any extreme choices by the Browns, especially because you can stick a whatever an original an, an original round tender on the guy, and I don't think anybody's going to want to give that up to sign him. So I think you've still got a lot of control in this situation, and and the only catch is the guy that brought him in and threw him the lifeline isn't here anymore. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if that's going to change anything. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hey, any parting thoughts before we get out of here? Anything you guys got? Well, we the the one thing I'll say is is we had on on we talked about the Ron Wolf comments and I know there were some some subtext folks that asked about that and again I'll will just kind of reiterate like don't don't be afraid of this all right you can yeah. marry you can marry old school football and scouting which is necessary with analytics which you you've got to have more information is never a bad thing so I, I think what Ron Wolf said was one of those pay attention to the last name things right right. <laughs> Yep. Yep. All right. On that note, listeners, we're going to get out of here. I know I keep saying this. It's, it's a, a been a weird week for the pod. Mary Kay's in, in Miami. 
doing some great reporting, as she always does, and we're here in Cleveland. So I hope you guys enjoyed that front half of the show with the segment with Dan and Mary Kay, and then we were here to give you a little more uh, analysis after that. Uh, we'll be back next week with hopefully a normal show, but as it is in Cleveland, who knows, but um, we're going to do our best to get you guys a podcast. So for myself, Dan Lobby and Scott Pasco, I'm Ellis Williams signing off for the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Thanks for listening, and take care, y'all.